This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode two of the Castle series on Hidden Histories. For this episode, I went to Kenilworth Castle. Kenilworth Castle is 900 years old. It has seen two civil wars and survives today as one of the most iconic medieval castles in our country beautifully preserved by English heritage. I sat down with one of the castle experts who talked me through everything that the castle has seen, the people who lived within it, and how it has come to be the sublime ruin that it is today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi 
Jan. Welcome to Hidden Histories. Thank you, Helen. So you are the chairman of Kenilworth History and Archaeology Society and English Heritage Guide here at the fabulous Kenilworth Castle. I am for my sins, yes. And we were having a chat earlier and you were saying you have a really remarkable history yourself with the castle. Since you were quite young, you used to come here, didn't you? I did, yes. I suppose if I'm going to admit my age, I was. Uh, it must be... 60 years ago when I first came here as a child. And now you're local to the area and you know and love Kenilworth Castle. I do, I do. How how could I have known back then in Yorkshire that I would end up living so close to the castle and actually working here? So we are going to talk all about Kenilworth Castle as part of the castle series on hidden histories. And we've already had a walk around the castle and you have an incredible amount of knowledge about it and it was really fabulous to have a really good look around and just be shown all of the nooks and crannies and talk about castle life as well so going back the castle is really rather old when was it first established well we have 900 years of history here um, the original castle was built round about at 1120 by Geoffrey de Clinton, who was treasurer and chamberlain to King Henry I. And the king was getting a little bit concerned about the loyalty of some of his barons in the Midlands, so he needed someone to keep an eye on them. And so he gave de Clinton land and the remit to build a castle. We're very close to Warwick Castle here, as you may have noticed. Yeah, it's sort of a few miles even, isn't it? Yes, and it's unusual to find two eventually very large castles so close together. Um, But Warwick was also a a little bit of a a problem in those days. So Geoffrey de Clinton was here to keep an eye on things. Okay, and so when we talk about it being built around 900 years ago, you might have thought that it would be one of the original Motton Bailey castles... Um, but actually, Kenilworth is quite different because it's quite—it's not, is it? No, it's not a conventional Motton Bailey. Normally, uh, you would um, build a great big earth mound uh, and then you would have a courtyard at the bottom of it and uh, a tower on top. But Kenilworth is actually built on uh, a, a natural uh, sandstone bluff. So the land was already there uh, and it's at the uh, end of a valley. So... The valley had a causeway put across it to access the mound uh, and the massive stone keep, the, 11th, the 12th century keep, uh, is actually still there. Wow, yeah, and it's, it is still in its almost original form, isn't it? It's it really is, quite yeah. impressive. Okay, so it was originally a fortified castle. What does that mean? Right, well, it had uh, a curtain wall around the inner court, that is the high ground where the keep was, and then King John built another curtain wall around the whole of the outside of the castle. Uh, He improved the defences tremendously by flooding a huge area of land to the south and west of the castle to create a huge defensive mere, uh, a moat to the north and east, defensive towers. He improved the existing towers. He made it into more or less an impregnable castle. And you were saying he flooded it as well, didn't he? He flooded the outer land. He flooded that outer land to create the mere. 
Okay, and that was it was 12, 12, 10? Around so? about 12, 10 to 12, okay. 15, that sort of period. He, he was having a bit of a problem with his barons at the time, which of course <laughs> led to Magna Carta. Six years later. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but this was a, a very strategically important mm. castle. It was right in the middle of England, uh, not really that far from the Welsh marchers. Uh, so a, a very, very good place to have a really impregnable castle. Okay. So this was the time when there was a little bit of civil unrest mm-hmm. in England. And how, um, how did Kenilworth survive that? Uh, well, it didn't actually see any action in King John's day as such, because most of the action occurred in other places. Um, but certainly in the reign of John's son, Henry III, it was uh, a very key castle. Henry gave it to his brother-in-law, Simon de Montfort, uh, a gift which he would come to regret in the future because eventually, just like his father, he found himself at war with his barons, but this time they were led by his brother-in-law, Simon de Montfort. And following Earl Simon's death at the Battle of Evesham, his supporters fled back to Kenilworth Castle, where they locked themselves in, and for many months the king tried to persuade them to leave When that failed, he laid siege to what in effect was his own castle, the (laughs) longest siege in English medieval history. It lasted almost six months, and in the end, the rebels were forced to surrender due to disease and starvation. So the castle was never actually taken by force. So King John had done quite a good job. Okay, so they were starved out. They were. Yeah, so that that was eventually one of the um, main siege tactics in medieval warfare, wasn't it? And I suppose Henry didn't really want to damage the castle too badly because it was really his castle. And it was worth a great deal of money in those days. So perhaps he was being a bit circumspect in not trying to damage it too much, uh, although towards the end... He had decided that if they really wouldn't surrender, that would have to be the case. But of course, they ran out of food and disease uh, attacked them, so they had to. Okay, and this is, so this was at a time when it really was just the keep, and then um, you've got the curtain wall, which is the outer wall surrounding the entirety of the castle, which is then surrounded by water. Yes, there would have been some um, accommodation which had been built back in John within the inner court. Yeah. All of that basically has disappeared under later buildings, mm. uh, although there is an area which is said to have been his chapel, um, which may or may not have been his chapel, uh, but that would have been one of the buildings that was there. So, the, the dynasty, I suppose, that did a lot of the building work to Kenilworth as to how we see it know it today began shortly after this, didn't it? That's right. I mean, the Plantagenets obviously did the first... Uh, well, the Normans, then the Plantagenets, and then we move on to the Lancastrians. And certainly during the 14th century, that's when things started to change a lot. Uh, Thomas of Lancaster, the king's cousin, Edward II's cousin, was a very wealthy, very powerful nobleman. Uh, He built quite a lot of new accommodation here. He added 800 acres to the existing deer park. He entertained on a lavish scale, Unfortunately, he came to a sticky end, of course, because he fell out with the king and was subsequently executed. Uh, Although, sadly for the king, 
he didn't do too well after that because there was another rebellion led by his own wife, Queen Isabella, and Roger de Mortimer. Edward was actually imprisoned here at Kenilworth for six months. Which is an amazing fact, because I had absolutely no idea about mm, that. I think a lot of people don't realise that. And it was here at Kenilworth that he was forced to abdicate in favour of his son, who of course then became Edward III. Okay, that's fascinating. Okay, so this was when, again, it was still being used as, as a fortress. But mm-hmm. it was really only at this point, under the reign of Edward's son, that it started to become more of a, of a residential castle, isn't that right? Well, th- during Thomas of Lancaster's day, that change had started. Uh, but yes, by the time uh, Edward III came into his own, uh, then yes, th- this was when the castle really started to change. Um, one of Edward III's greatest friends was uh, Henry of Gromont, mm. who subsequently became first Duke of Lancaster, uh, and he started to make more improvements to the castle. He built the second of three great halls here, but it was his son-in-law, John of Gaunt, fourth son of Edward III, second Duke of Lancaster, one of the wealthiest and most powerful men of his time, who completed the transformation from fortress into fortified royal palace. And this is something we've been discussing quite a lot today because this trip was a large part of my research um, for my for my book. And um, the I mean the changes that he made were really quite impressive. The amount that was sort of put into this castle was was enormous. But we were saying that you know he didn't just focus on. Uh, you know, the the very opulent areas where he would be entertaining, he really did put a lot of energy and thought into, you know, some of the lesser known places, like what, what was the, the, the cold house that we were looking at? Yes, uh, even the cold store had uh, beautiful stone vaulting. Mm. You'd need vaulting, obviously, to keep it cool, but it was decorative. It had corbels, which were quite decorative, mm. Um, the strong tower, as we call it, we don't know what it was called in John of Gaunt's day, but that's so named because it had each floor had a stone vaulted roof, uh, and that was probably the steward's domain close to the, the huge kitchens. And of course, the, the jewel in Kenilworth's crown at that time was John of Gaunt's Great Hall, mm. uh, a huge, absolutely opulent hall, 90 feet long by 46 feet wide, six fireplaces, tapestries glorious early perpendicular windows like cathedral windows beautiful tracery and glazed Mm. in the 14th century substantial quantities of fixed glazing really were only found in royal palaces and great abbey churches so this really was a very substantial royal palace Uh, Gaunt was wealthy as we know Uh, he styled himself king of Castile and Leon He entertained in lavish style. Those kitchens probably provided banquets for maybe 200 people at times. Mm, mm. Um, So it would have been a a really fabulous place. Um, Sometimes he was here with his duchess. Obviously, sometimes he was here with his very famous mistress, Catherine Swinford. Mm. Um, But yes, it would have been a a beautiful place. And of course, he lost the Savoy Palace in 1381. So who knows, maybe this was... His new Savoy, perhaps he wanted this to be his new Savoy. So this was the later part of the 14th century, and I think 
this gives a really good example as to how um, the medieval royal palace or castle would have looked. So what sort of things were going on here? So let's talk about um, let's talk about the kitchens and the people who would have lived and resided and worked within the within the I say palace within the <laughs> castle. Yes, I mean obviously there would have been a huge number of servants. Uh, the kitchens are very large, as you saw when we visited them. Uh, and I suppose, as a servant, the kitchens would generally have been quite a good place to work. Uh, in the wintertime, it would have been warm, for a start. Uh, you would certainly have got fed, whereas maybe some of the other servants had to struggle. And servants weren't given accommodation as such. You rolled up a blanket and slept wherever you could find a space. So again, the kitchens would be quite a good place to sleep. So I guess being a, a kitchen staff, would be quite a good job um, but obviously some people had the rather unpleasant jobs of um, cleaning the guard robes out and ensuite <laughs> toilets uh, there, there is a, a tower in the, the old keep which is the guard robe tower and I've never been able to find a, a way of actually how did they empty that <laughs> all those years of use uh, would have been a very nice place and I'm sure John of Gaunt didn't go in there at all no I'm sure he didn't <laughs> But um, but I when we were coming out, I, I did find that fascinating because that's actually quite close to the kitchens and quite close to there's this amazing um, bread oven and, and so people were baking bread in the kitchens as you can still see this sort of open type oven of course yeah uh, hole effectively yeah, in the yeah, wall and then yeah. there's also somewhere for a um, a, a large a cauldron, cauldron. yeah, yeah so the, the bread oven I suppose if you think about a modern day pizza oven yeah it looks it, that's it yeah, you know, yeah. they they push the bread. Bake the, the bread ready for baking on uh, flat paddles. They push it into the oven, then they pull it back out on a flat paddle, just like a pizza, yeah. basically. Um, so yes, if you think of a pizza oven, that's how it works. And that's right next to the large cauldron where you said people would almost stew. Yes, they would have hung giant chunks of meat in there. That 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 may be a, a little later than the original kitchens, but um, yeah, it has a little staircase at the side of it, so one of the kitchen boys could climb up and inspect what was happening in there. I don't know whether any of them ever fell in. <laughs> I suppose it would have just been added protein if they did. <laughs> so coming up, so going up a, a notch away from the servants, so you then had, who was, a, who was sort of presiding all of, over the castle, all the sort of goings on whilst the Lord well, was there? Well, a Gaunt would have had a chamberlain. Uh, he would have had his own accommodation there. And the responsibility for ensuring that when his lord arrived, everything was ready. The accommodation for guests was ready. The kitchens had been stocked. He would have made sure the steward had everything under control as far as the kitchens were concerned. Uh, he would have had the keys to the uh, vault where all the beautiful uh, accoutrements for the great hall were kept. Uh, he was an important man, but the buck stopped with him. So he would have made sure that everything was ready for when his lord and lady arrived. Okay. And when they arrived, and there's a big feast going on within the Great Hall, you, so what's interesting about here at Kenilworth is the, the actual building that the hall is, is in is, is separated. There's, there are two different floors, isn't there? Yes, it's built on a high stone-vaulted undercroft, uh, which is where the beer and wine would be stored. That would have been quite a cold room. Um, and obviously the servants' domain. So the guests would have actually entered the Great Hall uh, by climbing a broad stone staircase and entering through what is still 
substantially there, a beautifully carved and decorated doorway which had a vaulted porch. Gaunt himself, of course, would have entered from the state apartments on the opposite side of the hall, so none of his guests would have seen the undercroft. They would simply have been in the upper hall with its magnificent tapestries and all its uh, beautiful cushioned window seats and so on. Uh, at the end of the hall was a, a tiled dais, uh, behind that a triple fireplace. And a dais is, so for people who might not be familiar with that term, what would that, what, what is that? That was the, air, the most important area of the hall uh, where the Duke and his Duchess or whoever's with him would be seated and their guests would be seated along uh, long trestle tables placed down the length of the room. The most important guests would be seated closest to the Duke and the least important at the opposite end near the screen's passage. Okay. Uh, we know that above the screen's passage there was a minstrel's gallery Okay. And Gaunt actually employed a permanent troupe of minstrels. So they're the musicians. Musicians. Yes. So they were always with him. Wherever he went, he knew that he had minstrels ready to play for him. He knew how to entertain. <laughs> so what is interesting about this is, because it was treated like a, a royal palace, it does give us an insight as to what it would have been like for, um, for kings and queens as Absolutely. well around this period. Right. So it would be a very similar practice, um, wouldn't it? So the Great Hall, um, so you finished... Uh, dining on these with these sort of lavish, um, lavish uh, ornaments and silver, and what happened to all of that afterwards? What after the meal? Yes. Well, all of the valuable pieces would be returned to the vault. Mm. Uh, the trestles would be cleared away, uh, and there would be entertainment, uh, mm. possibly a jester, music, dancing. Uh, people would sit on the, the window seats with their fabulous views looking out across the lake. Uh, and there was a, a semi-private area of the hall, uh, again with window seats, where the Duke could take his most intimate guests if he wanted to chat to people in semi-privacy. that's something you can still see today, isn't it? That you can see today. It's a kind of an oreal bay with a bay window. With a little fireplace. And it has its own <laughs> fireplace. So you imagine in the oh, winter. sounds lovely. <laughs> all the size of that, even with five other fireplaces. Yeah. It still wouldn't have been incredibly warm. No. So to have your own little area with its own private fireplace would, would have been rather nice. Yeah, absolutely. So one indication that still survives today as well as to, you know, the actual level of opulence that went on at these feasts is the strong is the strong room, which still survives. It's just off the Great Hall. What what is that? That that is the room where all of the uh, plate and goblets and so mm. on, all the very expensive accoutrements that would be used in the Great Hall, they would be locked in there until they were required, and the Chamberlain would have the key. They would be taken out, used in the hall, and then, of course, once they were finished with, they would go back into the strong room. Okay, so aside from, so you're going at the end of the uh, end of the Great Hall, so you're on the side where you have um, the Duke and the Duchess, or or in other um, castles at this time, you have the King or the Queen. Um, you would, they would then be able to go back into their own state apartment from from, from an entrance from the Great Hall. Yes, that's, that's right. There, there was an exit from the Great Hall. Uh, down a passageway, <clears throat> through uh, an audience chamber, probably a privy chamber, solar, and they would be the, the more private rooms of the castle. Mm -hmm. uh, and there is actually the fragments of a tower, which today, predictably, is known as Gaunt's Tower. 
simply because we know that that is where the Duke's most private accommodation would have been. And that, of course, would have been very lavish. Again, those beautiful views from the tall windows looking out across the mere. Yeah, yeah it, is, it is incredible when you, when you see it. You can really reimagine and rebuild it in your mind, that sort of spiral staircase. And um, so these rooms, these, these private rooms, what sort of things would have gone on in there? Uh, well, we know that there was an audience chamber and it, it has been suggested that a room like that may have been, uh, may have doubled mm. as a, a dining room for the senior household staff. Mm. We don't know that for sure, but that was a, of, often happened in that kind of a, a building. Uh, there would have been a privy chamber, a smaller meeting room, uh, and a solar, which tended to be uh, a family room, a ladies' room, where the Duchess uh, could sit with her ladies and perhaps sew the sort of jobs that uh, ladies had to do in those days. It didn't matter that you were an important lady. You would still sew. You would still do needlework. Yours would be the, the finer items, perhaps uh, decorating a shirt for your lord or <laughs> something like that. Um, the ladies-in-waiting would do the more mundane sewing. Uh, so that's the sort of thing that happened in, in a solar um, and then, of course, you, you would need bedchambers. We don't have any details of the configuration of those apartments, sadly, because they were completely remodelled in the 16th century. Um, but, as I say, we do know that the tower contained Gaunt's most private rooms. So the next sort of major renovation that happened here at Kenilworth was, was it in the 16th century? Yes. Um, I mean, obviously, lots of people lived at Kenilworth in between. Henry V, for instance, had much of his childhood here at Kenilworth. Oh, right, okay. Um, of Agincourt fame. Of Agincourt fame. He may even have planned his campaign here because he did favour Kenilworth when he became king. He often returned between campaigns and he had a completely private set of apartments built right out on the edge of the mere, accessed by boat from the oh. castle. So if he wanted to spend private time away from the hustle and bustle of the castle, or maybe even private discussions with some of his ministers, maybe that is where they went. And that's interesting because I think that, that says a lot about him as a mm, king, isn't it? That he yeah. valued his privacy. Indeed. He was quite an insular type person. He was, he was. Um, having been brought up quite a lot at Kenilworth, both he and his brother, John of Bedford spent time there. He obviously fell in love with the castle uh, and liked to come back here. Um, yes, so Henry V is quite an important uh, person here. Uh, if we leap forward to Henry VII, for instance, he had probably one of the first tennis courts built here at Kenilworth, out somewhere where the Pleasance on the Marsh was, the, uh, the building which Henry V had built. Uh, Henry VIII built a small range of stage apartments here. But yes, the main next phase of building, and perhaps the period which most people tend to associate with Kenilworth, uh, is the Elizabethan period. Elizabeth I gave this castle in 1563 to her favourite courtier, Robert Dudley. Mm -hmm. She created Earl of Leicester. And I think most people know that he aspired to marry her. And to that end, he spent a vast amount of money and many years transforming what was already a medieval palace into a Renaissance palace, which he believed would eventually be their permanent summer residence. 
course, Elizabeth did not marry Leicester. She did not marry anyone, but she did come here four times. Her most famous and final visit took place in July of 1575, when she spent an unprecedented 19 days here and was royally entertained throughout. And I think this is the period which most people think of. It's been suggested that this was Leicester's last great attempt to woo the Queen to persuade her to marry him. Um, certainly he went to great lengths with the fantastic entertainments and firework displays which happened here. So it is a very famous period of the castle. Mm. Um, beautiful gardens as well. Beautiful mm. gardens. Uh, his original gardens were quite spectacular. They were full of allegory and symbolism. Uh, obviously they were destroyed possibly around the time of the Civil War, but 10 years ago, English Heritage actually reinstated them from an eyewitness account, which is still extant, uh, a detailed letter by a man called Robert Lanham, or Lanham, as he's sometimes known. He gave a day-by-day -day account of what was happening here at Kenilworth during that visit, including a detailed description of the garden. So after excavation and investigation it was decided that much of what he was saying could be verified particularly with regard to the wonderful marble fountain and so English Heritage have recreated that garden so this year is our 10th anniversary oh fabulous. so they've just had a, a relaunch which is rather fun so now's a good time to come and visit now is an excellent <laughs> time the gardens are looking absolutely beautiful good Okay, so from um, becoming a Renaissance palace and a place of leisure, England is then plunged again into a state of unrest, isn't it? Absolutely. Um, Kenilworth reverted to the crown in the early 1700s, uh, sorry, in the early 1600s after Elizabeth's death, uh, and it was given to Henrietta Maria, the wife of King Charles I, so at the very beginning of the Civil War, it found itself on the wrong side. There was another castle down the road, Warwick, which was a large parliamentarian stronghold. And although Kenilworth didn't really see any action during the Civil War, uh, the garrison which was here was uh, taken out. So the parliamentarians took the castle, used it, but after executing Charles I, they were probably concerned that there might be an upsurge of royalist sympathy. They didn't want the castle to be retaken, used against them. And of course, they probably couldn't manage to garrison two castles so close together. So it was decided to slight Kenilworth, to render it indefensible. You probably noticed when we were in the keep that it doesn't have a north wall anymore. Mm. And those walls were 15 feet thick, but they took that wall out they breached the outer curtain walls, partially dismantled the southern gatehouse. So it was really no good as a defensive building anymore. And after the war ended, they stripped all of the beautiful state apartments. Lots of things were sold off. And of course, they took the lead from the roofs. So if you take the roofs away, the buildings soon fall into disrepair. And so it became a ruin. Yeah. And we were discussing this earlier because it then subsequently just became a tourist attraction, a place where artists were quite inspired. So it really was a, quite an early 
case of a castle becoming the tourist attraction that most castles are today. It, it was indeed. I mean, certainly from the in, in the mid 1700s, we we know that there were visitors. Um, uh, Joseph Banks, for instance, who was uh, one of the great explorers, who went off on uh, bringing plants and things back from exotic places. He visited Kenilworth, and and he actually wrote about it and talked about yeah. visiting. Um, lots of other famous people visited. Uh, Sir Walter Scott wrote his novel Kenilworth, which was published in 1821, and that caused a great interest in Kenilworth Castle. It was a novel, of course, so you can't believe everything that he said <laughs> in it, uh, but it kind of put Kenilworth on the map as a tourist attraction. And, of course, Turner was mm. painting all of these beautiful ivy-covered romantic ruins. Sublime. Once you got the, the Industrial Revolution, the trains, travel became easier, more and more people wanted to see these beautiful places. Uh, and so it continued as a tourist attraction. In 1984, English Heritage took over the care and conservation of the castle. And since then, it has spent a great deal of money in not just in conserving it, but also in enhancing the visitor experience so that people can really get to grips with what was here and to enjoy it. So it is my favourite castle, as you have probably gathered, <laughs> but it is a magnificent castle. It is really stunning. It's, it's, so, it's so beautiful and it's just so fascinating as well and gives you such, all these layers of history, it just gives you such a wonderful insight into, well, history of not only... Um, medieval fortification all the way through to you know covering two civil wars but also what it was like to live in a castle yeah. it's a door into the past mm -hmm. and these buildings are so important mm -hmm. to to keep that going we have lots of visits from school children mm -hmm. you know it's even on the curriculum for the GCSEs it's so important that, that we can actually see and enjoy these wonderful places and aesthetically on a day like today, with the blue sky shining through those empty windows in the Great Hall yeah. and the sunshine on the red sandstone. There are um, images on my Instagram account for those who want to go and take a look. Yeah, it is really quite beautiful. That's wonderful. Thank you so much, Jan. And um, I'm sure that you have inspired many more visitors to come and see Kenilworth. And I do hope so. Yes, yes, I do too. It's so worth it. It's so worth the trip. And it being so conveniently located right in the middle of the country, which was convenient for now, but actually has always been convenient. But that's right. And fortunately, Kenilworth now has a railway station again <laughs> after all of these years. So if you come on the main line to Kenilworth, uh, to Coventry, you can even catch a train to Kenilworth. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. 
Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.